Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. I'm coming to you from Sydney, Australia. It is episode 45 of the It's a Monkey podcast, Friday the 5th of September. As the year screams away, it is September now, which is uh, the month of my birthday. Please send gifts to P.O. Box 1370, Sydney 2001, um, if you care to. And with me is James Peter who is currently in Vancouver, Canada. James, how are you? Hey, not too bad. Pretty good. How, um, how old are you turning this month? Is it uh, 21? Oh, come on. You know, like, you, you know someone's old enough when they sort of hesitate to answer. <laughs> I think I just entered that category this year too. <laughs> I, and, and I particularly don't like answering it because apparently I look young for my age. So I, I don't want to sort of, you know, destroy people's illusions. You know, it's like, oh, really? Oh, I thought you, the image, yeah. yeah, I thought you were a <laughs> lot. And, you know, the tech startup world is, is all about the young rock stars. So I, have to, I have to try. Um, yeah. My one friend says to me insultingly. Uh, my one friend, semi-patronizing. I mean, she is a bit younger than me, but she says to me, oh, are you going to wear your young clothes tonight? I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> what do you mean by that? She claims I've got, you know, two, I subconsciously dress for two sets of audiences, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> one to make you look younger, one to make you look older. <laughs> exactly right. Um, like many years ago when I worked for a tech startup just before the, the dot-com boom, um, and uh, I would sit in on some meetings with the, the, the founders, and um, I noticed that um, they, they played themselves up or they played themselves down, depending whether they were talking to customers <laughs> or suppliers. And so they said to me, you know, if we're asking for money or we're being asked for money, we pitch ourselves in very different ways. So uh, I, guess, <laughs> I guess it's all about the audience. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, if it's your first time listening to the podcast, a very special welcome to you. We cover everything related to the tech economy. Please tweet us at Monkey Podcast. We've received some great tweets. In fact, I'm going to pull up one of the tweets, James. Uh, someone tweeted to us that we are now their um, favorite tech podcast that they don't miss. So um, that's really nice. I'm going to pull that up right now. You're listening to episode 45. Um, we come to you every second Friday, so check your iTunes. Please subscribe on iTunes, comment on iTunes, email us. We love to hear from you. Um, so we got a comment from Ian Anderson Gray, who told us about some of the other podcasts he listens to. He listens to um, This Week in Tech, the Twit podcast, Marketing Companion by Mark Schaffer, and the Life Hacker podcast. I tweeted out from that account asking what other podcasts he finds interesting. Um, and our shout out, which I can't, which I'd like to, can't find that. Um, I'm sure I retweeted it. Oh, there we go. It's from Lauren Kinsey, um, who is based in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, thanks, Lauren, for, for tweeting out. And, and uh, Lauren said she's listening to my f new favorite tech podcast, Monkey Podcast. So um, thanks for that. Um, we've got a terrific show coming up for you um, in the light of the celebrity hacking that's happened and everyone's been chatting about. We chat to a, uh, a security expert, a tech security expert, a cybersecurity expert, Professor Golden Richard from the University of New Orleans. Um, we spoke to him earlier today, so that interview is coming up a little bit later. And as usual, we have the tech news, and uh, everywhere we go and read in the internet is all about Apple, James. Yeah, definitely. It's um, it's definitely heating up um, in the lead up to their big event in, um, when is it, like five days now? So not, not very long, September 9th. September 9th, and it is official that, that they will be announcing all sorts of bits and pieces then. Yeah, it's going to be their, their their big event for the year, and it's been a while since they've announced anything new. So I think everybody's a little bit excited about it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff on the radar, and I think a lot of people are quite excited about the prospect of um, an iWatch or whatever you want to call it, the wearable device um, that there's been a long time coming. Um, I mean, there's been rumors about this for years now, and nothing's ever eventuated, so it's still um, you know up in the air, but um, the marketplace does seem to be heating up for it, and there definitely seems to be you know, um, a market for it now, so I'd be very surprised if they, they didn't roll something out. Um, and there's lots and lots of rumors coming out about it this, this time around. Um, 
Inter- frustratingly for Apple, they, they had the iCloud hack this week, I mean, which wasn't <laughs> really a hack. I mean, it was a brute force um, you know, entry into the system as far as, as, far as I know. But it, yeah. did, it did put Apple into the spotlight for all the wrong reasons at a, at a very poor timing, very poor timing for them. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I mean, we can talk about it more general after the interview, but, um, yeah, look, I mean, they've definitely been painted in a bad light and they're definitely, um, look, I mean, I think it says more about Apple's dominance of the, of the you know, the the celebrity space or whatever, that just everybody has iPhones these days, so everybody's using it and they kind of just become the the default target. If you have anything, have anything um, digital, then it's going to be on Apple. But um, yeah, I mean, some of this this stuff that they've got coming out um, with the the watch, um, you know, there's some new rumours that they're they're going to introduce some NFC um, technology. So um, basically, it's going to make it, um, uh, which is near near field communication, which basically means it's kind of like a an invisible communication with stuff really close to the device. It's kind of like if you have um, PayPass or whatever you want to, um, I think it's called different things, different places in the world where you kind of like wave your credit cards over payment devices. Um, in theory, you could do a very similar thing with your iWatch and potentially um, with other devices as well. You could kind of unlock your your home with your iWatch and all these other potential uses for it. So there's some interesting stuff coming out there. Um, NFC, and- of, co- of course, being similar just for if someone's listening and they, they don't quite understand it's similar to bluetooth isn't it it's a li- it's it's a bit uh, it has a, a bit more of a range and i believe it's not as secure as bluetooth um it's uh, it's actually um a lot closer than bluetooth so it only generally works within oh, so it's closer uh, than bluetooth i thought it was the other way around no it generally only works within sort of um um i think it's like 50, 100 centimeters or something. So it's it's like very close. Um, have, you have to be very close to the receiver, which is partly why in theory it's more secure because you have to get really close to the actual, um, you know, it kind of is proof that you really are physically in that place rather than somewhere remote because, um, you know, you have to be really close to the, the device. Um, I mean, that doesn't. you can obviously still skim it because you could kind of walk past somebody and you can still, um, you know, detect it and whatever, depending on the, the encryption and everything. It's still possible you could access it. But, um, yes, it's a, it's a generally nearer than Bluetooth. So it's my understanding anyway. Uh, I could be wrong on that. <laughs> so, 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 so this is Apple's, I mean, there was an article about um, Apple's plan to kill PayPal. So this, this seems like part of... Apple's interesting new ecosystem build where they're sitting on nearly 1 billion credit card numbers in iTunes. They roll out the, the iWatch with NFC and, and have an, an NFC-enabled payment system that they roll out to merchants where you just tap your watch with your finger and then you sort of, you know, tap your watch against the um, sort of device and boom, you've, you've paid and it's linked in with your credit card. Yeah, look, it makes an awful lot of sense. Um, I mean, there's been obviously a few attempts recently to do it. There's quite a lot of um, movement in the space um, with Android. Um, and Google have, have tried to do that as well with um, with Android phones, some of the newer Android phones, but it's sort of been limited in its success. Um, whereas with Apple, you know, they kind of have a history of being able to corral, you know, very... Um, um, you know, disparate industries um, into one area, and um, if you can kind of look um, cool by tapping your your iWatch or whatever it is to to purchase payments, it's good for the consumer. It's good for the merchant. Um, so it is the kind of thing that if they do it right, they they really could have the potential to um, to get yeah, to really own that space and and make an awful lot of money as well um, if they're they're sensible about it. Um, I, so I don't know any other service besides PayPal that would have as many credit cards centralized on file like that no no and i mean that is that is the big thing that people have been talking about for a while that um, they've kind of been sitting on this and um you know a, a large part of the success of the app store has been you know this their ability to get people to put in their credit card details and make these payments so if they can bring it outside of the app store and they can bring it into physical merchants, if they can bring it into the digital space in some way, um, and if they can use their technologies like Touch ID and obviously the iPhone and the iWatch to create these cohesive, secure payment systems um, that are also user-friendly, um, yeah, they're in a very, very unique position. 
Um, so, but obviously only have one shot at it as well, which is probably why they've taken their time on it because they don't want to roll out something half-baked because that will, um, you know, that would be worse than not doing anything. Well, um, um, let's have a look. Who, uh, there was an article on Business Insider that quoted Ming-Chi Kiao of KGI Securities who, for whatever reason, I don't know, he seems to be some sort of, uh, you, you know, provide some interesting details about Apple's products and uh, on, on the last iPhone release he predicted or had some information on, on some of the features and here's what he he says about the um, uh, about the iWatch according to the latest from Cal the iWatch will come with eight gigs of internal storage space um, this is half the storage space as the entry-level iPhone, which suggests that Apple may want you to be able to store music and apps directly on the watch. So this is quite interesting, is that that, that Apple may be taking the strategy of, of turning the, the watch into an independent device itself as opposed to the smartwatches, which, which, um, which like the Pebble, etc., which piggyback off your device. Yeah, it's an interesting move if they, if they do do that. I mean... It makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, I think we can probably all imagine a world where, you know, phones don't exist and, and watches do. Um, maybe it's actually even a better um, place to have that kind of device. Um, the obvious limitation is the screen. You know, it's going to be harder to do a lot of things we used to these days, like, you know, watching videos or playing games on a, on a watch. But all the other functionality obviously works really well on a watch. Um, and there's obviously a lot of potential there as well to do a lot of the things that are becoming more fashionable with a lot of wearables like, um, you know, jawbone, step tracking, monitoring your heart rate, um, all that kind of interesting health stuff. And there's an awful lot of interesting areas where Apple could innovate there and um, bring it all into one device. Which, you know, is kind of what they did with the, the iPhone. They brought all the, the various technologies, um, you know, your phone, your email and web browser um, and messaging all into, into one sort of amazing device. So there's obviously opportunities to do that there on the, the watch as well. That, that nobody's really done very well. Um, you know, there's there's some interesting, you know, potential ones coming up, but it's still it's still you know a space with lots of opportunities. So yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see what they do. Um, Cal also says that the the iWatch will come in two sizes. One will feature a 1.3 inch screen, while the other would come with a 1.5 inch display. In terms of designs, the analyst suggests the iWatch will be made of aluminium just like the iPhone and could come in a gold color option. Of course, these are all just rumors at the moment. So uh, who knows what the, the real story would be. And um, let's let's wait and see. Not, not too long to go now. I mean, I have to say that a few of us in the team have been using Jawbones, and, um, which is the wearable similar to, similar to the Fitbit. And, uh, and uh, I, I find it fascinating. I find it really... Not not only fascinating to track some metrics that you don't usu usually track, be that steps or, or sleep patterns. I find the social networking layer around it really quite interesting. We there's three of us that are connected in the team, and we can see each other's um, activity and and steps and exercise. And it has a sort of interesting social dynamic when you not only have insight into your own behavior, but you have insight into people close to your behavior that may or may not impact you um anyway my point being that that i'm pretty sure they uh, will i would be surprised if apple hasn't taken at least some step into uh you know putting some sensors onto their watch if not totally totally really going to town with sensors on that i mean that in my mind would really be a smart move on apple by, um, from apple yeah, absolutely. It's definitely it's definitely the the place where they can innovate in um, in ways nobody else is. Um, and they did bring out that health kit, um, or actually, it's not even out yet. It's um, it's coming out in iOS eight, um, which you know in theory brings this stuff together. So it's kind of the perfect companion to to health kit on the iPhone. It's this you know other device that does all the sensing and automatically builds up your data for you. Um, so yeah, it's going to be going to be very interesting. Yeah, well, it's exciting times. I, I constantly have a bit of an argument with my brother who loves high-end watches and um, all these fancy watches, these expensive watches. And I, and I say to him that even these sm fancy watch companies, I think within a couple of years, if not even less, are going to have some smart type version of them. I know it's a very high-end industry and they pride themselves on classic features and longevity and and wind mechanisms but um, 
I, I, I wonder if one of these these high end companies may just just have a have a, have a little go or a little taste at, at trying to combine the two, creating a classic watch with some smartphone features. But I don't know. Maybe I don't understand that, Michael, well enough. Yeah, I mean, it would be. It's obviously a great opportunity for them. It would be probably a bit of a loss for them if they didn't. Um, because you know, if Apple shows anything, having a, having a good brand behind a, a good product um, is a great way to get a lot of customers. So, um, yeah, they could definitely one of these good, good, well-known watch brands could definitely bring out something amazing. It's um, the high-end brand world, James, is really interesting. Very, very different to the tech world. I mean, it's all about psychology and perception. And um, I went to buy a gift at um, the Chanel store for the first time in my life last week. And I was just flabbergasted how much they charge for their goods. A, a, a 150 gram jar of cream, a tiny jar of cream. No, sorry, not 150 gram, 80, 80 gram jar of cream. Something really small in any case. Nearly $200. Yeah, it is, it is crazy. Yeah, you definitely pay. You pay for the brand. <laughs> but it's, it. Wow, I, I take my hat off to them that they've, they, they managed to create uh, products with that that value anyway um this is not the podcast for um, um high-end high sort of uh, cosmetics <laughs> because i i think between you and i we probably know less than nothing about that one yeah not, <laughs> not my area of expertise um another news story which is a little bit of a sentimental news story i guess twitpic is closing down now twitpic if, if you are relatively new to twitter or, or, or um, haven't been on twitter for that long in the early days of twitter twitter was very a, a very rudimentary service with with uh, only the ability to basically um, send out tweets and manually retweet there wasn't even a retweet button you had to sort of copy and paste and, and you couldn't really do anything else on twitter and there were all these third-party services that helped you do all sorts of exciting things on twitter and one of the most popular ones was one called twitpic which allowed you to take a photo and automatically upload it into Twitter. And this, um, in the early days of Twitter, it was huge. Everyone used it for photos and videos, and it was absolutely massive and um, huge usage. And uh, they announced this week that they are closing down. Um, Twitter, of course, rolled out their own photo services a few years back, which no doubt impacted TwitPic significantly. TwitPic have said that the reason they're closing down is because Apple have challenged their trademark application. Um, Apple, uh, sorry, not Apple, Twitter have challenged their, their trademark um, application for TwitPic. But Twitter did say, James, that they can continue to trade under tw uh, TwitPic. They just can't trademark it. Oh really? Did they did they say that? Yep, they're on record. Uh, they're on record as saying that they they can trade as Twitpick, but they won't let them um, actually trademark it. Ah, that's yeah, that's very interesting. And that wasn't the impression that um, that their blog post gave. It was the the impression I got out of it was that um, Twitter told them they couldn't use it, but um, couldn't use the name at all. But that does make a lot more sense. Um, that that if they can't. Um, that if they can't trademark it, that's that's a you know sensible uh, thing for Twitter to do because they obviously have to protect their trademark. Um, but yeah, no, it is an interesting move. I mean, in the early days of Twitter, I believe didn't Twitter actually have TwitPic as an option for sharing photos? Is that right? Could have. They could have been. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Could have. I think there may have been some some semi integration or, or something. Yeah, I thought there was some sort of two way. I think that was partly why they became so popular was because um, I think Twitter did allow you for a little while at least to upload photos and they were and they were sent to Twitpic and then embedded in Twitter. Um, so yeah, no, it is. I think and then I think they rolled out a whole bunch of different options for services and then obviously they replaced that by just doing it themselves. Um, but yeah, look, it's a very interesting move. But um, as you say, it's um, you know obviously their their traffic would have taken a hit from the from you know all the Twitter changes over the years, and um, and it seems more likely that this is a um, you know an opportunity for them to to close the doors, taking the opportunity to you know to to, to end it rather than um, rather than necessarily something um, to do with um, Twitter actually forcing them to shut down. Yeah, look, it's. Um Apparently, the founder, I believe his name's Noah Everett, um, he's involved in some other startup. 
So, um, yeah, there may be a combination of factors that, that he decided to, to close it down. I think he famously tweeted out or twit picked out that um, he was getting arrested a few years ago over something. Oh, really? I don't know hmm. if you remember that. No, I don't know. Um, here we, here's, here's Twitter's comment about it. We're, we're sad to see TwitPicker shutting down. We encourage developers to build on top of the Twitter service as TwitPick has done for years, and we made it clear that they could operate using the TwitPick name. Of course, we also have to protect our brand, and that includes trademarks tied to the brand. Yeah, no, that is, um, yeah. That, it makes a lot of sense from their end. I don't, I don't think Twitter's at fault there. And, I uh, mean, we've had our own experience with Twitter and their, and their name restrictions. So. And the comment, the commentary on on the GigaArm, which uh, where I'm seeing this this quote is, it's not entirely clear what Twitter meant in that statement. Did Twitter off, offer Twitpick a way to stay in business? Could the company keep the name if it stopped trying to trademark it? I would imagine that's that's um, what what they offered. So um, it makes sense. Rereading the Twitpick blog post as well, it does say um, that. Yeah, it does just say that Twitter contacted them saying they had to abandon the trademark application or risk losing access to the API. So it doesn't say they have to actually abandon using the name. It just says abandon the trademark application. So that makes an awful lot of sense. Yeah, look, the world of intellectual IP is um, is, is is a bit of a, a bit of a murky, complicated world. Uh, I, I have a friend who. Um, has set up a very small one one person business and her surname clashed with some big PR company in um, in the states and and uh, she got some letter from some some big law firm saying that she had to stop trading under that name because global mm. clients might be confused so yeah it's, uh, it's 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 a bit of a messy field anyway that's Twitpic so. Uh, Goodbye to Twitpick, and we've all, we've all moved on. But um, yeah, nostalgia, sentimental, but uh, life always goes on. Um, you're listening to Kevin and James. We are the co-founders of Manage Flitter, which is a product that helps you work smarter and faster on Twitter. Hope you've uh, checked us out. I hope you uh, give it a go. Tell us what you think. Um, the podcast is published um, every two weeks usually. Today's episode number 45, it's Friday the 5th of September. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to be talking to Professor Golden Richard who's a professor of computer science and a security expert at the University of New Orleans. James, I keep saying New Orleans, but the locals seem to say New Orleans. Mm. Well, I'm actually going there in, um, in January, so I'll be able to tell you. <laughs> okay, so, so let, let us know, just like... Melbourne people say Melbourne, and nearly everyone comes from out of town there goes Melbourne. Melbourne, yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, we'll be chatting to Professor Golden Richard after the break. Stick with us. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error free. You're back with uh, It's a Monkey podcast. It's episode number 45. It's Friday, the 5th of September. Um, remember, we come to you every second week or so over the internet. Now, if you follow the tech press or even the popular press, you would have seen this week that there was an alleged hacking scandal with some celebrity photos being unleashed um, into the wild. And security pops up every now and then as a, as a major topic, as everything, all our data moves into the cloud, as um, our data becomes more uh, just distributed, as we rely on more of this technology, um, obviously the security re related to that becomes more of an issue. I, I was interested to see an article in the Bloomberg Business Week um, recently that said the US government wants 6,000 new cyber warriors by 2016. So um, not only are there, um, we concerned about threats with our own technology, but obviously um, threats, countries are worried about cybersecurity threats, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought I'd get hold of an expert because it is a, it is a, a, a tricky 
complex field. So at the end of the line, I have Professor Golden Richard, who's the Professor of Computer Science at the University of New Orleans and also the Director of the Greater New Orleans Center for Information Assurance. Um, Professor, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Yes, no problem. Um, let's let's cover this Apple hacking scandal. It's got people worried. It's got people concerned. It's and it's, people are now. Some people are saying they're not going to back up their data anymore because they don't want things on the cloud. Um, what's your view on on what ha- happened with this quote unquote hacking um, incident? Yeah, I think I think not using you know not using iCloud as a reaction to this is sort of an overreaction. Um, uh, the, the the big issue is that. Any internet-facing uh, services that are that are protected by passwords really have to have strong passwords. It looked like there was a, a glitch on Apple's part in terms of not having um, having accounts disabled after certain numbers of, of password attempts. But you know, strong, very strong passwords would probably have uh, have thwarted the whole thing. Uh, you know, we, we've had incidents in our lab, for example, when we've been setting up new labs and student workers were, uh, you know, configuring machines and, and, and creating temporary accounts with passwords like, you know, one, two, three, four, five and stuff and, and, and literally have been hacked the same day as the lab is going up. So anything that touches the Internet really needs strong passwords. So you're saying it's essentially it was a brute, uh, a brute force hacking attack and the, the only issue on Apple's side was that they... Um, allowed for unlimited attempts of entry into the service. Yeah, it, it, it seems to be a case where accounts uh, just weren't disabled after certain numbers of of uh, of, um, of password attempts, and in, in some states, in, in sense, that's sort of like training wheels for you know not having good passwords. Um, good passwords probably would have would have solved the problem. I mean, you know, Apple surely should have had that that account disabling thing in place and it you know it's rapidly patched it but yeah it's not it, it doesn't seem to be some super you know super technical hack or anything it's just a bad password situation so what so what about um you know the average um, apple user android user that aren't tech heads that's just your run-of-the-mill person i mean should they be concerned about having data into the cl- the cloud, uh, you know, Google Docs, iCloud, etc. What, you, you you know, it's very complicated and easy. They, it, it's, there's a lot of bits and pieces for the for the average person to understand. What would you say um, their best attitude and approach to their own um, data security should be? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's it's hard. The good passwords thing is certain certainly very important. There's also the issue of of whether many of these cloud-based systems, um, you know, adequately protect against insider threats at their own organizations. Because, I, you know, I use Dropbox. I, I couldn't really imagine, uh, you know, doing work anymore without something like that. Um, but but there are worries that, you know, that, that data is potentially, even if it's not accessible from the outside, is, is actually accessible to, to actors inside the organizations. Um, the, the, it's it's really a balance of convenience versus uh, versus risk, I think, and it, it's sort of up to everyone to to you know make make up their mind for themselves. That doesn't excuse that doesn't excuse the providers from trying to do you know the best job that they can. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have a definitive answer there. I mean, if you if you're ultimately very very worried about the security of all your stuff, then probably cloud stuff's not the best idea, right? Because the security's really been taken out of your hands to a large degree. I think most people in most organizations would uh, be more impacted by um, not having backups than actually not using some of these uh, well-established, credible cloud services. Yeah, that's a very good point. Because, uh, you know, an an example um, for, for, for Dropbox, many people use it across many... Uh, computer systems now, for example, their laptop may be synced to Dropbox and the laptop is currently closed and they're, then they're using their desktop and doing some work and stuff. So machines that use, that, that are, that are synced with Dropbox that are not currently being used, uh, in some fashion or not network connected are essentially, um, you know, idle backup, uh, idle backups. And I use Mac, Linux, and Windows machines. And so, you know, the idea is, is that it's not it's not very, um, it's 
not very likely that you'll have, for example, malware, malware attacks that, that, that compromise all those operating systems at the same time. And so having your data um, synced via Dropbox, even if there's some potential risk to your security, is, you know, is better than, than, than just being completely wiped out. Um, I just went and did a forensics um, uh, recovery at my hair salon because people were, <laughs> had literally had a computer crash that would have lost all their, all their accounts since the beginning of the business opening. They had no backups whatsoever. So, I mean, data loss can, 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 can be much worse than someone at, say, Dropbox, like, you know, reading your, uh, your bad poetry or something. Yeah, I think for small and medium-sized businesses, um, definitely um, the, the security at companies like Google and Dropbox in any case is going to be a lot better than your own security internally, both uh, human-wise and system-wise. Yeah, that's the issue I hear all the time with Gmail. You know, that the, the Gmail may be mined for uh, information that may help with advertising and stuff like that. But And, and so a response that I typically see people do is, oh, I'll just install you know, my own Linux server and maintain it and stuff. But the, the, the likelihood that the people then keep up with security patches and, and actually know how to do configuration and stuff, they may end up being hacked, you know, in a, in a much more severe way than, than, uh, than they would ever have experienced using Gmail. Yeah, I used to use, uh, many years ago, I used to use Outlook stored locally on my own machine. And I was always incredibly worried about that, the, the physical machine and, and syncing backups and testing recoveries and it was just it was such a burden and that, and uh, many years ago I switched to Gmail in our organization and um, that that burden is now just offloaded and whilst it's not perfect it's certainly certainly a lot uh, better than just having physical laptops with with data and unsynced backups and untested backups floating around. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. I used to do the same thing, and I still do um, physical backups and do off-site things and everything. But I'm sort of diligent about making sure that I do that. Um, I, I don't do it as often as I used to. Like I may rotate backups off-site from my my home office, you know, every month or two now instead of like every week. But many people just don't have the discipline to to keep up with all all that stuff and and replace hard drives and you know in in some sort of cycle so that old hardware doesn't fail. It's it's quite a pain. So the, the new stuff is, is so much easier to use. And of course, just like with the threats in the real world, you know, most assaults or a lot of assaults and, and murders are by people that you already know and crimes or inside jobs. And I think you made an important point that one of the most important links is that that human layer. That's always um, you look at Edwin Snowden, regardless of uh, you, you know what your opinion, whether it's right or wrong. I mean, it was it was someone on the inside that um, you know got access to to all this classified information. So that human layer is is the big X factor. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's let's talk about some of these uh, the, the Pentagon's plans and its cybersecurity stuff. I mean, there's long been talk about you know cyber wars and and uh, you know when when wars happen there there are some website hackings etc. What what type of real threats um, are happening on the sort of cyber on the on the technology level? Is is it a real threat that um, you know infrastructure, phones, water systems could actually be attacked by um, you know malicious malicious forces? Well, I mean, yeah, we have we have so much you know infrastructure that's internet facing now that that um, that that cyber attacks. You know, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's an overstatement at all to imagine that there's catastrophic damage that you can do uh, with those kinds of attacks that equals, you know, huge, uh, you know, hurricanes or earthquakes or other kinds of natural disasters can really disable tons of stuff. I mean, you could imagine how much business would be devastated, for example, if Gmail was successfully, you know, completely compromised and and taken down. I I don't know what would happen. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it, it, it's a real issue. Um, and, you know, attack is always much easier than defense, and there's very, very smart attackers now that are creating uh, threats that people, you know, 10 years ago never thought would be remotely possible. Are you aware of, um, you know, on, on the, you know, the Gmail is still, I guess, the corporate side, side of things, although it would have, obviously, huge economic in- impact. But for instance, between nation states, you know, we we hear of Chinese hackers, and 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 are you are you aware of anything significant 
that has happened um, with respect to some type of um, compromises on the sort of national nation state level? Yeah, I, I don't I don't have clearances to know any of that stuff. Right. And, and likely if I had the clearances, I couldn't talk about it anyway. Fair so, enough. yeah, I can't. I don't have any info. <laughs> And um, I mean, it's quite interesting to see that the Pentagon uh, obviously agrees with you, and they and they have a, a massive recruitment campaign, but they are struggling for a variety of reasons to fill all those roles. Yeah, I, that, that, that's 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 totally it. My, uh, you know, my, I, I've I've had this conversation with people um, recently, and I think one, you know, it's really cool to be sort of on the inside and know whatever, you know, know all the the the, the that are that are happening and try to uh, stand up national security and stuff, but there, there's some real serious uh, issues with hiring uh, so many people. I mean, one uh, one is salary, right? So I I, I regularly get um, offers from uh, well well job job um, announcements from companies like the re- most recent one with HP, just to pick an example. Uh, that are that are offering you know six figure salaries for my students who are learning reverse engineering. Um, it's it's hard to compete with those salaries. I think uh, at, at the government level, uh, the, the various you know tiers of, of of salary restrictions and stuff. I have I have people that have taken my reverse engineering class and and gone out uh, and and job hopped a few times that are already making you know one hundred sixty thousand dollars a year and can stay at home and work and and have tons of freedom. All those aspects are, are, are really important. I mean, a lot of smart people that do cybersecurity like, you know, working in the middle of the night on their couch, on their laptop, and uh, all those high salaries and stuff are, you know, it's just human nature to, to snatch at the freedom and, and the money versus a restrictive environment with lower salary. Uh, so I think you have to be sort of duty-bound in some way to, um, to, to, um, And of course, they're looking for um, six thousand, which is six thousand people with cybersecurity skills, which is which is a tall order. That tall order. The other issue that the article addressed was, um, which I didn't realize, that seventy percent of postgrad computer science students at some universities are are non-U.S. citizens. I didn't realize it was that high a figure. Yeah, it's 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 a very large number. A a, a, a really huge number of my grad students are. Um, are from Asian countries and, and Pakistan and and, uh, and India and um, yeah, I mean it's 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 pro- it's problematic in terms of getting clearances and stuff in those um, for those jobs because of course they 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 want uh, U.S. citizens only and even if you do have uh, um, status to live and work in the U.S., it's notoriously difficult um, to get citizenship in the U.S. Um, Professor, do you see any um, the fact that they're going to struggle to recruit these six thousand people? Um, do, you, do you see that as any you know national security threat that the U.S. is not going to be beefed up enough? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a big issue. I'm not I'm not sure it'd be different in other first world countries to face the same issues with salary and freedom and stuff. Um, I, I, I the, the the good news is that you know you're you're always going to have some percentage of people that do take the duty bound thing. Otherwise, we wouldn't have you know firemen and policemen and stuff like that who who traditionally don't you know they're not really paid in uh, in a way that's commensurate with the danger that they they, they face. Um, uh, and and the, the good news is that NSA and, and other organizations like NSF um, in the U.S. certainly know about the, uh, the deficit and. They're funding programs to increase the number of um, of cybersecurity students or people concentrating in cybersecurity in university, and uh, that you know, despite its very nature, uh, increases the likelihood that the government will be able to hire some people that are appropriate. So I'm I'm pretty happy about that. We just we just did a a program this last summer where we brought in high school teachers from all over the U.S. and, and put them in a two-week uh, cybersecurity boot camp and really, you know, uh, really just killed them for, for two weeks. So they were put up in a hotel in New Orleans and came to the campus every single day for, you know, eight hours to, to uh, do cybersecurity exercises and hear lectures and attack each other and do all kinds of stuff so that they could go back and, and, and get students interested in, um, in, in careers in cybersecurity. 
it's one interesting thing when I teach when when I um when I talk in in, in high school is that many people, despite all the television shows and, and stuff, don't really know that there are job opportunities in cybersecurity. So they don't even know that they could go study this in, uh, at a university, which is a little surprising. That 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 is surprising, and um, I think. I think um, you know, in general, the the people getting into tech is an is an issue in in most countries. I know in Australia that we're just not turning out enough, uh, you know, computer science grads and 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 all sorts of tech people. And uh, it's really in our countries in our own interest to to get everyone involved and as many people across these industries because our future really depends on it. Um, Professor Golden Richard, uh, Professor of Computer Science at the University of uh, New Orleans, really appreciate your time, and um, we'll put all your, your details on our podcast. Um, people can um, sort of uh, stay in touch with your page via um, some, of the li- some of your links. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks for the time. Bye-bye. Bye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. James, security has always been... Uh it's always been one of these things that hangs hangs over the industry. It's always an arms race. It's always a case of what the weakest link is. There's always no easy answers. But of course, in the internet, with everything being interlinked and uh, um, the exposure, especially for celebrities, is really uh, you know when things go wrong, it's it's quite can have quite significant impacts. In the case of celebrities, could really help their career or just absolutely destroy their career. Yeah, look, look, it's very interesting, you know, this whole security issue. I mean, I think, um, I think one of the really interesting things that have that has come out of the, this whole sort of hacking scandal is, um, you know, it, there's kind of this underground world um, that of people who do sort of leverage, you know, people who do have, um, you know, poor passwords and poor security, um, and who uh, and who you know to who do trade off that um, and you know they're not necessarily the most sort of technical savvy people um, and that just goes to show sort of how fragile everything is in in this digital world we live in um, and I mean I think I think I, mean, I, I certainly always expected that something like this probably existed I didn't really go looking for it or really have any sort of understanding whether whether it really did but I mean it definitely sort of has sort of blown open this this world a little bit um, that there obviously are you know a whole number of exploits and a whole number of ways that you can sort of get access to, to people's private information that um, that the average person doesn't know about um, and that's obviously being sort of leveraged in sort of malicious ways um, and yeah it just just shows how important it is to sort of use um, you know the the utmost levels of security otherwise you become very vulnerable um, particularly when you're you're somebody who's well known i mean though it was a bit of a rookie mistake on on um, apple's part though to allow people to um, to not limit the amount of login attempts i mean I, i'm not even a security expert and and i would have definitely with with a service as um you, you know consumer facing as that absolutely i mean you know give a couple of attempts and then boom even just to make them wait for an hour or whatever yeah look, look it's very complex um i mean it wasn't actually their core service it was um it was actually like the password reset service or some sort of weird secondary thing that that they were using to leverage this so they did actually have that locking in there in some way and was like kind of some other service that bolted onto it that was um, that had this vulnerability, um, but again, this vulnerability was relatively, you know, small, and it wasn't known by a huge number of people, um, and it didn't necessarily make or break the ability to people actually act to access accounts. Um, and a lot of this data didn't even necessarily come from Apple devices. It was definitely sort of taken from, you know, a whole range of different devices, um, you know, over the years, um, and um, and then sort of traded privately. Um, 
Um, and yeah, and obviously there was sort of a situation, uh, sort of a, a marketplace, I guess, where you having access to somebody's sort of private details and then having the ability to, to kind of trade it for money, um, you know, makes this, it makes actually quite a very interesting sort of underground marketplace that I don't think has necessarily existed before because, you know, as soon as any of this data becomes private, it immediately kind of, uh, sorry, public, it then kind of immediately devalues everybody's um, private data. Um, and um, and then also obviously puts everybody at risk of sort of being found out and prosecuted as well. Um, and all you need is sort of like one bad player in the environment to sort of do something stupid and sort of release the information and the whole thing gets gets blown open. Um, actually, I think it's amazing that it didn't happen earlier. <laughs> I think it's amazing that it happened this long and people were able to sort of, um, you know, build up that, that amount of information before it sort of um, leaked out. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see if anything else falls out of this, that if that kind of community exists already, maybe there's some other sort of other communities trading data around maybe, you know, companies' financial data or something very interesting along those lines or maybe even government data um, that, that maybe these, these ecosystems exist and um, maybe some of that data will start coming out. Um, but again, there's obviously very little benefit for the people who do leak it, which is probably why these communities can exist uh, for quite a while. I mean, there's a long time been uh, trades in credit card information. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, you can buy credit card information for, for pretty cheap, apparently. Um, I'm also surprised that, uh, with, I agree with you, I'm surprised that they're, they're actually, it's relatively speaking, not as many breaches as you'd think, considering these days nearly every bit of communication happens in an electronic format. You would think the, the trail of communication is mm. huge. And in the case of celebrities, it's that the public was so hungry for that information. It's just they find it so fascinating and so compelling that the, yeah. the, the value for these hackers would be pretty high if they could crack some famous celebs phone and get a whole text message stream between i don't know angelina and brad or whoever the the latest of the moments is you know it must be it must be a real challenge for these um i mean it being a celeb you would really be paranoid about just putting anything in electronic format absolutely i mean i'm maybe maybe if you weren't before you, you would be now um but um yeah no i mean it's incredibly hard you almost need to kind of have like a um you know like a like what drug dealers do you know have like a separate phone that you want to have entirely private and um and have personal information on and then sort of another device which is what you actually use to communicate with the the world in general and have them completely siloed and that's, that's kind of almost the only way to to do it securely because all of these um you know services are interconnected and if any one of them becomes vulnerable and anybody becomes access has access to your email or any other device that allows them to escalate it up um you, your whole kind of ecosystem of private data immediately becomes vulnerable. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there probably just isn't, I mean, obviously in our world, you know, like we know a lot of techniques like, you know, two-factor authentication and having, you know, strong passwords that, that help us to stay protected. But, you know, <laughs> celebrities is probably not on the top of their list and that's probably not the kind of things they talk about at parties. So, um, you know, there's probably an awful lot of people, you know, in these high-profile positions who, who aren't particularly well protected. Um, so yeah, no, it's interesting. Maybe there's maybe there's an interesting job there for for somebody to come along and train train celebrities on how to use technology correctly. Well, on a on a side note, I met a I met a guy in Sydney a few years ago who was head of security at Commonwealth Bank, or, or head of one of their security divisions at Commonwealth Bank. Commonwealth Bank being one of the the, the big four Australian banks, and he was wor previously working for Rupert Murdoch on um, I believe it was Avatar who which fall under one of Rupert Murdoch's umbrella production companies or Fox movies or something I believe I'm, I may I may be wrong that it was Avatar but I'm, I'm I, I believe it was his his single role his was to make sure that this movie did not leak before mm -hmm. um, it was it was at the cinemas and apparently he, he met with Rupert Murdoch himself and Rupert said to him as as long as it doesn't leak, everything's fine. That's all I want from you. If it leaks, there's going to be problems. So, um, did it leak? Um, oh. According to him, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't. Yeah, I don't remember it leaking. Um, so it job. <laughs> a, 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 another interesting fact about what he said about Combank is that you know they obviously use multitude of systems there, 
and the mm. list of systems that they use is only sitting on one spreadsheet. So I, that's the sophisticated, on a reductionist level, their systems just come down to a spreadsheet, mm-hmm. which just, uh, which I was sort of surprised about, you know, they keep track of all their systems on a spreadsheet, but, um, and there wasn't anything more integrated, but um, I'll, I'll see if I can dig up his details and uh, maybe I can, I can have him on the, on the show. So um, their security is, uh, Definitely. Look, if they weren't talking about it as p- at parties before, James, I think they're going to be talking about it at <laughs> parties now. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's probably the one the one positive to come out of it. Um, but obviously, you know, there's data that, that's gone now that um, that they'll never get back as well. You know, there's obviously a lot of stuff that wasn't released. Um, and, you know, some of those photos that came out were sort of 10 years old. So, you know, it's been sort of a long time, long time coming. So... I think it probably will, um, you know, shake shake some people's expectations of, of you know, digital privacy quite a bit. Um, so, it's an interesting world we live in. Yeah, look, I mean, you can imagine, you know, never mind celebrities, you can imagine everyday people, what type of information they have on Facebook chats, on Skype chats, on photos. It must be, you know, it must be remarkable. Movies and movies worth of information. What would be interesting is in a thousand years' time, if this data could be accessed and retrieved, just like an archaeological experience of today when you go digging through ruins, what people will, how much they'd learn about society through all, um, through all this data. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a huge, huge treasure trove there. And, um, you know, particularly with people living, you know, who are sort of... Um, being born today, you know, their entire lives are going to be recorded and they're going to have this digital trace um, that's not going to be able to escape them. So, Apparently, um, something like 80 or 90% of all the content, all the data ever created has been in the last two or three years, something like that. Wow, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, you can understand that with, with how many hours of YouTube, you know, videos being uploaded, you know, every minute and how many tweets being published out. And that's where big data... You know, if you're at university now or looking at, at fields to get into, dis, to, you know, there's the cybersecurity, which um, the professor mentioned is a, is a hot area, um, but also big data. I mean, it's, it's, there's just tons and tons of data that we, we're not going to know what to do with. Um, speaking of data, there was an interesting, there was an uh, earthquake in San Francisco last week, a, a relatively significant one um, at that woke was significant enough to wake everyone up and jawbone the wearable that i spoke about earlier that we use published a blog post about how they track people's sleeping habits before during and after the earthquake i think i've posted it to the team on yammer james i'm not sure if you saw that blog post yeah i did that was that was very interesting yeah crazy crazy how that that was how it's so strong how it was so obvious with the times where people were woken up and how it increased um activity overnight yeah, and to, to observe society on the macro level is, uh, yeah, you know, we all feel so individual in our lives, but our behavior is just so um, collective. And, you know, the data just really highlights how, how, how similar our lives are. So uh, big data definitely going to shape our lives. Um, I think that's it for this podcast. It's been episode 45, uh, Friday, September, uh, Friday, the 5th of September. Um, please go to our website, itsamonkey.com, and you can pop in your email address and you can receive an email notification when we publish the podcast. That way you don't have to think about it or remember it. So just go to itsamonkey.com and pop in your email address. You can unsubscribe at any time. We only send the email out when the pub- podcast is published. Um, if you want to send us some ideas for the show, tweet us, email us. We love to hear from you. Um, and until next time, um, it's goodbye from Kevin and James. Have a good one.